Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And if you are remaining in the sanctuary, then please open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 9. Uh, if you do not have a Bible with you, paperback Bibles underneath chairs in front of you. And as I just try to remind you every Sunday, we like to take very seriously even the very details of the biblical text. So I think it's helpful if you have a Bible open in front of you. So. I think it's 493, page 493. That's just from my memory from last week, I think is where the passage is in the paperback Bibles. Mark chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 14 to 29 this morning. Um, For a time, it was the most famous painting in the world. It was finished in 1520. It was painted by uh, an Italian painter named Raphael. And the title of the painting was, or is, it still exists, The Transfiguration. I don't know if you knew about that. One of the most famous paintings in the world is based on the passage that we looked at last week, The Transfiguration. And uh, it's a very fascinating painting. Of course, you can find it online and and take a look at it. Um, But the painting shows Jesus there, kind of elevated in, in all of His glory as His divinity is shining through His humanity, and pictures uh, Moses and Elijah at each side of, of Jesus, also kind of elevated, and then down on the ground on the mountaintop there are the three disciples, and they're kind of just looking overwhelmed and terrified, as, as the text says. But if you look at the bottom half of the painting, it's very interesting. The bottom half of the painting is very dark. First half of the painting is very bright and light as you see the glory of Jesus in this painting. Bottom half of the painting is is dark and and hidden, and and you see chaos, and and you see trouble. You see people down here kind of arguing, and there's conflict. And what we see is in this painting is this enormous contrast between the mountaintop experience of the transfiguration and what is going on in the valley, you might say. Last week, you might remember, I talked about a mountaintop experience as this experience that many of us have at one point or another that's just thrilling and uh, monumental and life-changing. If we thought of the opposite of a mountaintop experience, we might describe it, if we want to keep with this metaphor, as walking through the valley. And what that painting presents to us so well is the glory of the transfiguration, but what it is also like when you come back down the mountain and get into the real world. The truth is that all mountaintop experiences are followed by valleys. We have mountaintop experiences from time to time, but eventually we come back down to the valley. We get back to the real world where there are disappointments, frustrations, what appear to be insurmountable challenges, conflicts, sorrows. And the challenge is this, that when we start walking through the valley, do we slip into unbelief? Or do we maintain this confidence that all things are possible with God? I mean, when you're on the mountaintop and you're seeing Jesus and all of His divinity revealed, it's easy, isn't it, 
to believe. But when you come down off the mountain and you start walking through the valley, that's when belief becomes a big challenge, and that's what we're thinking about here this morning, Jesus and belief, as we look at this passage that immediately follows the transfiguration. <clears throat> we're just going through the book of Mark here at New Life, taking it one passage at a time. Servant King is the name of our series. And um, again, the transfiguration is, is over, and Jesus and the disciples are coming down the mountain, and we're picking up where we left off last week. So if you're able to stand, please do so, and we will pick up with verse 14. Mark 9, verse 14 says, When they came to the disciples, so they is Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, and they're coming to the rest of the disciples. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Holy Spirit, come, open our eyes, Lord. Help us to see wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so, uh, hopefully as I read the text there, you kind of saw how that connected to my introduction. These disciples and Jesus come down to the real world. They come down to a mess. And so, from this passage, I want to uh, present three things to you, and the first is this very simple point, and that is that living in a fallen world means there will often be trouble. And after the mountaintop experience, whatever it is, we 
enter the real world and we find trouble. Jesus himself said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. And that's exactly what Jesus and these three disciples found when they came down off the mountain. So there's really two kinds of trouble that I think we're finding here. And the first is relational trouble. What do they find? First of all, there's an argument going on among this uh, group of scribes and the disciples among this great crowd we see in verse 14. Now, we're not told exactly what the argument is about. Well, I guess we are kind of a little bit later. The, the argument is about the fact that the disciples have tried to cast out this demon and they've been unable to do that. And so, what we're not given here are the details of the argument or the transcript of what the scribes were saying. We could maybe imagine what it might be like. The scribes might have been saying something like, hey, I thought your Jesus was so powerful. Uh, how come you can't cast this demon out? I mean, looks to me like you guys are a bunch of phonies going around claiming to be Jesus followers. And I mean, we've seen Jesus do these kinds of miracles, but, but you can't do it. Uh, what's the problem? Maybe they're saying, you know, here, try doing this. Try waving your hands. Try saying that. I mean, do it our way. I mean, we're not sure. But it's probably that kind of an argument. Like, they're looking down upon the disciples because of their failure to be able to cast out this demon. And so, we, we have here the, this argument. And if you've been in the church for any length of time, you might know that sometimes church people argue with each other. <laughs> I mean, that that does happen. I mean, sometimes people come in from the outside of the church. They expect uh, people in the church to never argue, to not have these kinds of relational problems. But the fact is that it's, it's very common for Christians to disagree and to get into arguments. Um, we had a presbytery meeting on, on Friday, and uh, from about 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., we argued. <laughs> uh, it was uh, relatively contentious kind of argument. I saw one guy that said that Christians are sometimes like porcupines. As we move closer to each other, we tend to poke each other and hurt each other. And sometimes when that happens, it makes us only want to move away from each other. And so, this is a church that's not plagued by conflict, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I don't mean to be pointing at this congregation as if we are an arguing congregation. We, we are not. But in the church, generally speaking, you know, it's just not uncommon to face this kind of trouble. This is life in a fallen world. We just disagree with people, and we, we don't like people, and people rub us the wrong way. Relational trouble develops. But perhaps more serious is the spiritual trouble that is going on at the bottom of the mountain as the disciples kind of re-enter the real world and start walking through the valley. There's spiritual trouble. Jesus comes, verse 15, it says, He comes down off the mountain and says the people are amazed. Now, it doesn't tell us what actually is causing their amazement at Jesus. Presumably the same crowds that have been following Jesus, they've seen Him before. Why are they greatly amazed now? We're not sure. Maybe He's Maybe there's a glow kind of to him. Maybe there's still light coming from him as a result of this transfiguration. We're, we're not sure. But in any case, Jesus comes down and asks them a question in verse 16. What is it that you guys are arguing about? And we see in verse 17, someone steps forward and he says, I brought my son to your disciples. He is... Uh, He's got a spirit in him that makes him mute, unable to talk, 
And uh, this spirit, verse 18, it throws him down on the ground. He foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. And I brought this son to your disciples, expecting them to be able to cast out this demon. And they couldn't help. They couldn't do anything. So that's the explanation of the nature of this argument. Now, as we look at this young boy and the symptoms that he is showing, you uh, might recognize them as being very similar to what would be called a, a grand mal seizure. There's something that is similar to the symptoms of a condition known as epilepsy. And uh, that is actually not mentioned here in Mark's account, um, but it is actually mentioned in Matthew's account in chapter 17, verse 15, Matthew describing this same incident. And Matthew quotes the man as saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. Now, this raises an, an interesting question, because there are critics of the Bible who will say, you know, when we see these <clears throat> incidents where demonic possession is described, now that we have entered into modern times and we know more about health and science, we know that those weren't really demonic oppressions, that those were just physiological abnormalities like epilepsy. We can diagnose the physical cause of these incidents and we can now exclude the possibility that there was any real demonic activity. That, that's the, a very typical kind of critique of the Bible. But you'll notice in this text that Mark clearly attributes the boy's condition, verse 17, to a spirit. And in verse 25, um, the spirit is described again as an unclean spirit. And so there is some kind of demonic activity at, at work here. That's what Mark is saying, and that's what Matthew said as well, but just Matthew added also that there is epilepsy. And so, you know, I think as we look at this, the way we can properly understand this is realize that it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be epilepsy and demonic possession at the same time. We don't have to reduce all physical ailments to just the devil did it, but nor do we have to pretend that demonic activity doesn't exist and attribute everything to a physical cause. Perhaps it's both. I mean, as a kind of an example, you know, when you think of what we know about, you know, crime organizations and networks like the mafia, you know, often they launder money, right? They take illegally gained money and they channel it through a legitimate business. So the business is up front, just appearing to be doing its day-to-day -day affairs, but running through it is this illegally gained money, this illicit activity. And perhaps that's what's happening here. This, this boy really does have epilepsy. He does have some kind of a grand mal seizure, but nonetheless, a demon is at work using that condition as kind of a front to try to destroy this little boy. In any case, you still might be thinking a little bit like, you know, really, do we, do we really believe in demons these days? Are we really going to say that there's... Um, you know, a red man with a pitchfork and horns growing out of his head who is behind all of the evil in the world. Well, I, I don't know if you saw the Grammys last week. Uh, maybe you've been uh, 
reading about this. I didn't watch it myself, but there's a singer named Sam Smith who performed this song, dressed as Satan, surrounded by flames, surrounded by demonic figures who were going through a ritual where they were appearing to worship him, singing a song called Unholy. That was on television before the entire nation. And I know the reasoning of some is to just say, you know, that's just entertainment. They're just kidding. It's just to show what are you worried about. That's the way a lot of people respond to those of us who are a little bit alarmed about what we saw. Don't overreact. Okay, it's a good point. I take that. There's some truth to that, but there's also truth to what the Scriptures tell us to abhor what is evil. In Psalm 97, oh, you who love the Lord hate evil. And there are some demonstrations of evil that are just so obvious they can't be missed. Exactly what Satan wants us to think is that this is no big deal and there's nothing here to see. That's what Satan wants us to think about everything that is his ploy to destroy his, uh, God's people. Nothing here to see. Don't worry about it. Don't overreact. Forget it. It's just entertainment. Just laugh and move on. I would say that what was shown on the Grammys was not funny and um, an evidence of what the Scripture says, that Satan is alive and well, and he prowls around seeking someone to devour. And that's what's going on in this passage. Uh, demonic activity is not something that just existed in New Testament times. It, Satan is at work. His demons are at work today as well, maybe in different ways than in the New Testament, but he is still at work. And that's one of the reasons why living in a fallen world means there is always going to be trouble, because Satan is making trouble for his people. So that's the first thing. It's just kind of a contrast to the mountaintop experience. You know, if we expect the Christian life to be one mountaintop experience after another, we can be disillusioned when we enter into the normality of trouble in the world. And so we need to be not pessimistic, but realistic about the world that we live in. Second thing, <clears throat> following Jesus means that you will often be challenged. The second thing that we see in this text. So upon hearing about the disciples' failure to cast out this demon, we see that Jesus is exasperated. Uh, maybe frustrated? I mean, can Jesus be frustrated? I, I, that's uh, uh, an interesting question. Um, he, he certainly is concerned about what he's seeing here. Verse 19, he says, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Uh, how long do I have to work with a generation of people, my disciples included, who are faithless? They have no faith. They, they have no belief. Their entire outlook is governed by cynicism and doubt and unbelief. He's exclaiming this about this entire generation of people. People don't believe I've been teaching, I've been performing miracles, I've been doing one thing after another, and still people are plagued by unbelief. And so Jesus just exasperated, just declares this and says then at the end of verse 19, bring, bring the boy to me. And so the boy is brought. In verse 20, and we see just the pathetic condition of what this demon, this 
spirit in him is doing. Of course, the spirit immediately convulses just upon seeing Jesus, a holy Lamb of God in his midst. But then we see that uh, this, this boy is... Um, just in such a pathetic condition, we, we can just imagine the, the father and the, the distress that he must see as the boy just kind of rolls around on the ground like an animal and he's foaming at the mouth and, and, and this father, he can't comfort his son, he can't say anything to his son because his son's deaf, he can't hear anything that his dad wants to tell him. And, and the father can't really understand and know the pain and struggle that the son is going through because the son can't talk. He's a mute as well, so he can't even express the frustration and the difficulty of what he's facing. And the father goes on to, to say in answer to Jesus that this has been going on since childhood, since he's just been a little boy, and there's been cases where this demon has come in and is trying to throw the boy into fire or water to drown him and to burn him alive. It's like this has been this dangerous situation, a life-threatening situation. This father has had to deal with, looking at his beloved boy all of these years, and now he comes to these disciples thinking that they can do something, and they can't. I mean, can you imagine the disappointment that that father must have felt? Maybe these disciples, maybe these Jesus followers can do something. And once again, he's disappointed. He's probably been looking for a solution to this his entire life, or the entire life of the boy, looking to doctors and various methods. They've all failed. Well, maybe the disciples can help, and he's just, he's just at the end. But he has one last chance, one hope, and it's Jesus. And he sees in Jesus some compassion. He must see it in Jesus' eyes, maybe, that, that this is a compassionate man. And so he goes to Jesus, or he, he says to Jesus in um, verse 22, uh, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, Jesus then responds in verse 23, and he picks up on that phrase, if you can. And so he says in verse 23, he says, if you can. So the man is saying, if, if you can, Jesus, can you please help us? And Jesus says, wait a minute, what, what do you mean, if I can? Of course I can. This is the challenge now that Jesus is issuing to this father. If you can, yes, I can. The question is not whether I can, the question is whether you can believe that I can. That, that's the question here, and so that's why Jesus follows that up by saying, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. That's the challenge. So again, remember the distress, the disappointment of this man. He has seen one method after another fail. He has every reason, actually, not to believe. And yet Jesus says, but do you? Do you believe that I can do this? The, the, the challenge is not casting out a demon. <laughs> That's easy for Jesus. The challenge is whether you and I and this Father believe that Jesus can cast out a demon. Do we believe He does that kind of thing? Do we believe that He has that kind of power? 
And so Jesus offers this challenge to the Father. Do you believe? Do you believe that I can? And then we have in verse 24 what is, I think, one of the most refreshing passages in all of Scripture. It's just such a beautiful demonstration of honesty and vulnerability and humility. It's one of my favorite verses. Verse 24. Here's what the Father says. In fact, it says He cried out. I believe. Help my unbelief. Yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. He's He believes enough that he's willing to publicly profess that he believes in Jesus. Remember, there's still a crowd here. And so, before all of these watching eyes, he says, I do believe, Jesus, I do believe. But at the same time, my belief is weak. My belief is shaky. My belief is up and down. My belief is inconsistent. Sometimes I wake up believing and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I have confidence, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I think you can, Jesus, and sometimes I don't. That's a faith that's just like yours and just like mine. All of us are a mixture of faith and doubt and joy and sorrow. That's the Christian experience. None of us are at a point of 100% certainty about what Jesus can do. We all bring a certain amount of unbelief with us. But what this man is doing is he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, look, Jesus, I've got to admit, I've got to be honest, I've got my doubts, but help me. That's, that's the cry of faith. It's a picture of true faith. True faith is aware of how small it is. It's True faith has no confidence in itself. True faith simply fixes its eyes on Jesus, and that's enough. And that's what we see in this man. How, how can I say that it's enough? Well, the reason I can say that his weak faith is enough, because look what happens. After he declares his uneven, weak, inconsistent faith, in verse 25, Jesus responds and rebukes the unclean spirit, and says to it, I command you, come out and never enter him again. And we see that Jesus, having authority over the entire spiritual world, the demonic world included, this demon comes out, this man, this boy convulses. It's such a, a traumatic experience that he apparently just falls down unconscious and people think that he is dead. But in this beautiful little picture of the coming resurrection, Jesus comes, takes him by the hound, and lifts him up. It's the same word used for resurrection. It's like a, a, a mini preview resurrection. Remember, the disciples were just trying to figure out what it meant when Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead, and they were discussing what does rising from the dead mean. I wonder if Jesus is giving them a little bit of a picture. This is what it means. Someone looks like he's dead, and I raise him up by simply touching him with my hand. And the boy is raised up, and, and he's healed, and he's perfectly normal. And it all happened through a man's weak faith. I mean, that should give us all encouragement, friends. God does not expect you to have complete certainty. God does not expect your faith to be totally consistent. 
There are some of you who might sometimes wonder if you're even a Christian because sometimes you have doubts. You don't need to labor under that burden. We all have doubts. All of our doubts, or all of our faith is inconsistent. Don't wait until you have perfect faith to come to Jesus. Go to Him with your doubts, with your uncertainties, with your weaknesses, and just declare to Him, Jesus, I believe, and help my unbelief. Jesus can work through the weakest faith. It's just as small as a mustard seed. Remember how Jesus said that earlier? J.C. Ryle says this, Doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us. He's ready to help you, no matter how big your faith is. Don't focus on your faith. Focus on the object of your faith. Jesus is strong. Your faith is weak. That's the way it works. Your faith is weakness dependent upon Jesus. So following Jesus means that you're going to be challenged, and very often this is the challenge that's that's going to come to you. Do you believe that Jesus can do these kinds of things, that He can solve your problems, that He can lead you to victory, that He can provide for all of your needs? Do you believe? Last thing to look at is this. Knowing your weakness should lead you to prayer. So the question still remains here, why couldn't the disciples cast out the demon? What went wrong? And so that question is posed to Jesus in verse 28. They get into this house, they get in this private location, and the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Now, To kind of give some context for why that's a very relevant question, we can go back to Mark 3 when Jesus first appointed His disciples or apostles. He appointed 12 whom He named apostles so that they might be with Him, and He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then in Mark 6, describing the disciples, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and and healed them. So Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons, and in fact, by Jesus' authority, they did cast out demons, and now they have an opportunity to bless this Father and cast out this demon, and and they can't. And so, why not? What happened? What went wrong? And I think the lesson we learn here is this, is that very often after our mountaintop experiences, not only do we come down off the mountain and, and have to walk through the valley and get back to real life, but also when we sometimes come down off a mountaintop experiences, we forget our absolute dependence on God for everything. Something great has happened, and we just kind of get caught up in the things that we did to make it happen, (laughs) and we begin to think that we can reproduce this thing whenever we want to, and we get into this attitude that it is our power and our knowledge and our ability and our strength that is sufficient to meet all of the challenges and difficulties and troubles that we are going to face in this life. It's just wired into our system. We're so self-dependent. We just want so badly to do it on our own. And Jesus says this very simply, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that is what the disciples had forgotten. They thought they could do it on their own. 
They thought they didn't need Jesus. Remember, Jesus was up on the mountaintop while they were trying to cast out this demon. When the disciples get away from Jesus, things tend to go, go wrong. So we might say, well, okay, how could these disciples have expressed their need for Jesus? How could we have known that they recognized their need for Jesus? And it's the very last verse in this passage. In answer to the question, why could we not cast it out? What Jesus says is, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. By prayer. Prayer is the way we express and acknowledge our dependence upon God. It's through prayer. Prayerlessness is proof that a person doesn't think he or she needs God. If your life is prayerless right now, I'm not saying you don't believe God, and I'm not saying that you're not a Christian, but if you're prayerless right now in your life, it's because you think that whatever's before you, you think you can handle it yourself. You think you can do it on your own. You think you don't need God. That's why you don't pray. You might say, well, but I'm busy. I got a tight schedule. Got a lot of things going on. Listen, you make time for things you want to do. You just do. We all do. You work in the things that you know are important. And the reason that we don't pray is because we think we don't need God. J.C. Ryle, again, I just think his writings on prayer are just so good. He says, why is it that there is so much apparent religious working and yet so little result in positive conversions to God? So many sermons and so few souls saved. So much running hither and thither and yet so few brought to Christ. The reply is short and simple. There's not enough private prayer. The cause of Christ does not need less working, to be clear, but it does need among the workers more praying. <clears throat> this is one of the reasons for our, uh, our weekly prayer meeting, 6.30 to 7.30 on Wednesday night, that this is a way that we as a congregation demonstrate that we really believe that apart from Christ we can do nothing. That's what that meeting is about more than anything, showing our dependence. God, we need you. Jesus, we need you. If anything truly lasting and beneficial to your kingdom is to happen in this place, we have to call on God to make it happen. Going back to the Presbytery meeting on Friday, as I mentioned, it was, it was contentious. <laughs> I don't want you to think that we're all enemies. We, we, we disagree, I think, in, in, in as cordial a way as, as possible. <laughs> um, but there, there was a lot of disagreement. Difficult issues we're talking about. Debates going back and forth. And after these Presbytery meetings, very often I come back and I just think, you know, I wish I would have said this. And I wish I would have said that, and when that guy said this, I should have said that, and you know, I just kind of go back and forth in my mind about that. And uh, as I was kind of studying this passage, I, I thought, you know what, here's what I really wish I would have done at that meeting on Friday. I wish I would have stood up and said, in the middle of the contention, men, we need to pray. Let's just stop for a moment with all of the back and forth and let's just ask God for grace and wisdom and direction. We can get back to the business, but let's stop and let's pray. I didn't think of that, and nobody else did either. And I just present that to you as a way of, sharing, of, of a showing that I share in this struggle with you. 
pastors share in this struggle with you. We all tend to think we can do it on our own, but prayer shows our dependence upon Jesus. So, friends, just to summarize, let me encourage you just to be prepared. Living in a fallen world means that there will often be trouble in your life. That's not to um, encourage you to be, again, pessimistic or, or, or fearful or, or worried or looking over your shoulder for the bad thing that's going to happen. There's a lot to rejoice in. We need to give God thanks for all of His goodness. But friends, don't be surprised when life gets hard. That's living in a fallen world. But also be ready. As you follow Jesus, He's going to challenge you. He's going to call on you to believe things that you think are impossible. And the challenge in that moment is not going to be whether God can do it. That's not really the challenge. The challenge is whether you believe God can do it. And then the last thing, friends, is in that weakness, once you kind of come to that point when you realize that I I can't do anything, boy, that's a good place to be because that's when you start praying. When you're aware of your weakness and your brokenness and your complete bankruptcy, then you start begging God to do things. And that's a good place to be. We always have access, isn't that good to know, to the God of the universe, the sovereign Lord who has made all things and governs all things and holds all things together because of what Jesus has done in His life, death, and resurrection. The way is wide open for us to call to that God. And He always hears and He always acts. Praise be to His name. Lord, thank You so much for this passage. Thank You for all there is to learn here. And we thank you, Lord, that you are patient with us who have weak faith. And so, Lord, I I declare personally and along with all of us who follow you, Lord, that we believe but help our unbelief. And we pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.